There's a Peanuts cartoon strip where Charlie Brown is conversing with Lucy. She says, you know what I don't understand? I don't understand love. Charlie Brown agrees. Who does? Lucy's really worked up over the subject. She vents her frustration. Explain to me, Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown replies, you can't explain love. I can recommend a book or a poem or a painting, but I can't explain love. She pleads, try, Charlie Brown, try. And so Charlie Brown gives it a feeble attempt. He says, well, let's see. I see this beautiful and cute young lady walk by. Lucy interrupts him. Why does she have to be cute and beautiful, huh? Why can't a young man fall in love with a girl who has freckles and a big nose? Explain that, Charlie Brown. Lucy's now extremely agitated. Charlie Brown shrugs. Okay, let's just say I see this girl walk by with this great big nose. Again, Lucy interrupts him. I didn't say great big nose. Finally, Charlie Brown, he walks away muttering, you not only can't explain love, you can't even talk about it. And this is the problem that we're having in our world today. We're having a hard time explaining and even talking about love. Definitions and dialogue have broken down. Emotions are raw. Nerves are frayed. Tweets get misinterpreted. We all need understanding. And here John comes to our rescue. He not only talks about love, but he explains it. He defines God's love for us and the importance of our love for one another. Chapter 3 begins with a bang. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. The Greek word translated manner means from what country. It speaks of a behavior or trait indicative of a particular nationality. Reminds me of a joke. Heaven is where the police are British, the chefs are Italian, the mechanics are German, the lovers are French, and it's all organized by the Swiss. Such a world would be heaven indeed. Whereas hell is where the police are German, the chefs are British, the mechanics are French, the lovers are Swiss, and it's all organized by the Italians. You know, different countries in the world are known for their own peculiar proclivities, and so is heaven. Heaven is known for what's in such short supply here on earth, love. And particularly God's love. You know, Ephesians 3 verse 18 speaks of the width and length and depth and height of Christ's love. His love is wide enough to cross borders and break down walls. The love of Jesus is long enough to outlive years and disappointing memories. It dives deep enough to reach the lowest sinner. And it rises high enough to touch the heart of God and atone for all our sins. Think of the degree of love it took for the eternal, holy, impeccable God 
to make children out of sinful, rebellious, onerous us. Spiritually speaking, I was a dumpster diver. Man, when I think of where I've been and the scraps I've sucked on and the scum I've swam in and the depths to which I've sunk and the shameful stuff I've done, I marvel that God would make me his child. God in heaven has found a way to make me his kid. Those of us in Christ are now children of God. Behold what manner of love that the Father would call us his children. But he continues in verse 1, Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. You know, Jesus was the Son of God. He reflected the Father in all that he said and in all that he did. Yet the Jews brushed him off. They called him a blasphemer. They didn't recognize God's Son because they didn't know God the Father. And this is the sad case for all of God's children. In Christ, we're co-heirs with Jesus, beneficiaries of divine mercy and grace. We're members of God's forever family, yet we're either brushed aside or ignored. We're sometimes scoffed at and persecuted. We too are not recognized and appreciated for who we really are. Movie star Helen Hunt is a successful leading lady in movie director. In 1997, she won an Oscar for for being Best Actress. She's also won four Emmy Awards and four Golden Globes, yet she's not always recognized. Recently, Helen placed an order at her neighborhood Starbucks. When she went to pick up her drink, fellow actress Jodie Foster's name was written on the side of the cup. Later, Helen tweeted, Ordered my drink at Starbucks, asked the barista if she wanted my name. She winked and said, we gotcha. Hashtag Jodie Foster. And just as the barista didn't recognize the movie star, this world doesn't recognize us for who we are. If you're a Christian, your heart is the site of a miracle. God's spirit now resides in you. Your heart is a sacred place. Yet instead of being treated as special, we're often treated as just a number or just a face in the crowd. Or perhaps you've been stereotyped or maybe even racially profiled. Don't let the way the world treats you affect how you see yourself. As Christians, don't allow the world to press you into its mold. Rather, live out what God has put in. We need to remember who we are in Christ. In Colossians 3, verse 3, Paul writes to the believers, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We need to realize that the Christian life is the hidden life. You know, the world looks at the Christian, and our devotion makes no sense. They scoff. Oh, she's committed herself completely to Christ and has nothing to show for it. And in a sense, the world is right. Our God is invisible. Our home is over the horizon, out of sight, off the map. Our greatest rewards are still future. Our Savior is seen only through eyes of faith. Our Helper, the Holy Spirit, is admittedly like the wind. He's spiritual rather than tangible. He's sensed rather than seen. 
Our treasure is buried in our hearts. Our source of joy and love and power and peace is accessed only from the inside of our lives. The handles are on the inside. In short, our life is hidden with Christ in God. Yet one day, and I believe soon, our plight will change. For verse 2 tells us, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. One day, God is going to let the cat out of the bag. What we truly are, the glorious children of God, will be revealed. Everyone will be in awe of us. When Jesus appears in the clouds, you and I will be on cloud nine. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that at the rapture of the church, Christians will be given new bodies. Our rotting flesh will be transformed. Rather than defined by our physicality or our race, we'll radiate God's glory. Our current bodies are too opaque. All you see now, all you see of me, is like the dust jacket on a book. And we all know you can't judge a book by its cover. My eternal body will be more transparent. When Jesus comes, the glory on the inside of me will be seen from the outside. You know, today we wonder what these future bodies will look like. Imagine being clothed in a resurrection body. A body no longer vulnerable to pain or sickness or soreness. A body that never gets tired and never breaks down. You know, we can mull over our body's future characteristics, but here John heightens our curiosity with just five words. Notice them. We shall be like him. Imagine that. We'll have the same type body with similar capabilities that our Lord had after his resurrection. We shall be like him. You recall Jesus before The disciples on the road to Emmaus, he vanished right in front of their eyes and then immediately reappeared in the upper room in Jerusalem. Apparently, his body wasn't limited by time and space. I'm not sure all that Christ-like includes, but one thing is certain, we'll be the envy of the angels. Beautiful, beyond description, we'll be like Jesus. You know, today skeptics label the doctrine of the rapture as a form of escapism. They say rather than changing our world for the better, all rapture believers are doing is sitting on their hands, twiddling their thumbs, biding their time, waiting for a future event. But that's not true. For in verse 3, John says that the rapture hope is a powerful motivation for godliness today. He says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You know, a young lady with a date to the prom isn't idle 30 minutes before the boy comes to pick her up. She's primping. She's getting ready, getting beautiful. She wants to look her best when he comes for her. And likewise, the bride of Christ wants to be at her best when Jesus returns It's this constant expectation of his arrival that keeps us on our toes. Wherever I go, whatever I do, I want to ask myself first, if Jesus returned this moment, 
Is this where I'd want him to find me? We want to be pure for sure. And then verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Lawlessness is what we've been seeing this past week as peaceful protests have devolved into rioting and looting. It's a reckless disregard for law and order. But now, I want you to think of lawlessness as the same disregard for God's law and order. Imagine rioting against God. Imagine ransacking His order for marriage or His laws for sexuality or His order for personal integrity. To ignore or to transgress His law does violence to His glory. And yet here's the good news. Sin can be paid for by proxy. In God's court, someone else can make my bail or pay my penalty. And this was done by Jesus. The one in whom there is no sin took away my sin and yours. For whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now please understand what this verse does not mean. John is not here teaching sinless perfection or anywhere for that matter. In fact, he said earlier in chapter 1, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We all blows it and John knows it. In the Greek, the verb sins is in the present tense and could be translated whoever continues to sin. The Greek word is harmatia, which means to miss the mark. It was a term used when an archer missed his target. And you see, this is man's problem. Our problem is not just that we occasionally miss God's glory. It's not that our eye mists up at the wrong time or we get distracted or our hand just slips. No, it's that our aim is bad. We can't aim straight. Our problem is internal. Our nature has been stained by sin. We're warped and we can no longer shoot straight. This is why Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus births in us a new nature. He transforms our spirit with the Holy Spirit. He turns us into straight shooters. Of course, this new nature doesn't mean that I can no longer slip up in sin. It happens. But the problem is no longer a warped nature. Evil is no longer internal to my spirit. It's external. It's the pressures of the world now or the devil or my flesh that cause me to miss the target. And this means that the key to living the Christian life is to abide in Christ as we're told here. Rely on Him to live His life through you. As believers, there'll be times when we'll miss the mark. But it's no longer because we can't aim correctly. Before I came to Christ, I occasionally slipped up and did good, but the flow of my life was towards sin and selfishness. Now that I'm in Christ, there are times I slip up in sin, but my prevailing desire is to love God and to please Him. This is the 
transformation that God works in our lives. And then he says in verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. It's like father, like son. A child of God acts godly, whereas evildoers are the devil's children. A child will mimic his or her dad. I've told this story many times, but it illustrates the point perfectly. Once, me and my three older kids were walking around the corner of the house. It was me and Zach and Nick and Natalie. They were just tots. We turned the corner when all of a sudden I spit out in the yard. I do that often, just spit in the yard. That's what yards are for. And that's when Zach spit. And that's when Nick spit. And oh my, oh my, you guessed it. That's when my darling, precious, feminine daughter hauled off and right out in the yard. And what made it worse is Kathy saw it. And I heard about it, but it happened. Kids take after their father. They do what their father does. And it's true spiritually as well. If God is your dad, you'll make a habit of doing what's right. But if you habitually sin or if you harbor hatred in your heart, then regardless of what you claim, you're a child of the devil. Verse 8, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. The reason Jesus came into the world was to break Satan's chokehold and set us free from the devil's influence. You remember in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus exposed Satan's goal. He said, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Satan wants to rip us off. He's out to kill our joy, our peace, our thanksgiving. But Jesus is our bodyguard. He'll take a bullet for you or even a nail. Satan tries to destroy while Jesus desires for you a better life. He promises life and life more abundantly. Jesus opposes the works of the devil. The words that roll from Satan's lips most often are foiled again. And then verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him and he cannot sin. That is, sin continually because he has been born of God. Listen to how J.B. Phillips translates verses 8 and 9. The man whose life is habitually sinful is spiritually a son of the devil. For the devil has been a sinner from the beginning. Now the Son of God came to earth with the express purpose of undoing the devil's work. The man who is really God's son does not practice sin, for God's nature is in him for good, and such a heredity is incapable of sin. In other words, righteousness and unrighteousness is in the genes. Actually, today, every dysfunction, every sinful behavior gets blamed on genetics. It seems from serial killers to homosexuals to alcoholics, folks claim they were born that way. 
And in a sense, they're right. We're all born with the proclivity to sin. We can blame all of our problems on the sin nature we inherited from the first man, Adam. Yet we still have a responsibility, for we can be born again through Christ. Jesus wants to take out your defiant spirit and replace it with a compliant spirit, one that loves God and loves others. If you're born of God, you'll love one another and you'll do what's right and practice righteousness. Verse 10 tells us, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. I read recently where two Russian women swapped two-year-old toddlers. The hospital had sent the families home with the wrong babies. One mother was reminiscing and looking over the memorabilia of her child's birth when she noticed another mother's name written on her baby boy's ID bracelet. The DNA test confirmed the mistake. And here John says that many churches are making this same mistake. For we're actually sending people home thinking they're a child of God when in reality they're a child of the devil. The way you know for sure is a spiritual DNA test. If your life stubbornly opposes surrender to God's will, or if it harbors hatred towards certain people, you can attend you can get baptized until your fingers prune up, or attend church more than the church mice, or tithe with one of those automatic bank withdrawals. You, you can do all that stuff, but you've got a problem. You know, we're hearing a lot these days about how everyone needs to help put an end to racism. I've concluded the best thing I and preachers like me can do is to make sure that church folk know you're not a true believer if you don't do what's right and love one another. John says that the DNA doesn't lie. He says, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Of all the roads that lead to hatred, jealousy is the shortest. It was jealousy that turned Cain into a murderer. It's been said a man green with envy is ripe for trouble. And that was certainly true in the case of Cain. You know, the story goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. In fact, do you know what the first man and woman were doing after they sinned and got kicked out of the Garden of Eden? Do you know? The answer, they were raising Cain. (laughs) That's the one good thing that came out of the quarantine, the, the laugh track, you know. Cain was their first son. Their second son was Abel. Abel realized his lawlessness and that God wanted justice. You know, God wants justice too. And since the wages of sin is death, Abel brought a sacrifice to God's altar. But Cain was a proud man. He brought God his crops, the work of his hands, the outgrowth of his his effort. 
Rather than offer God what God wanted, Cain offered what was convenient for him. And God rejected Cain while accepting Abel. Of course, this sent Cain into a rage. He was angry. Cain didn't get what he wanted, and he took out his frustrations on Abel by attacking and killing his brother. Understand, men of God like Abel are easy targets for people mad at God like Cain. It's been said a man's arms are too short to box with God, and so that leaves man to take out his anger and frustration and envy on God's representatives. And this is why John tells us not to be surprised by persecution. He writes in verse 13, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. If they hated Jesus, certainly they'll hate his followers. Don't be shocked when you're hated for Jesus' sake. Verse 14, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Love is so important. Understand, love is evidence of spiritual life. How do you know you've been born again? It's because God's love dwells in your heart. This is how you check for a spiritual pulse. This is like checking to see if a person's alive. Is there love? Is there love in their heart? He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Obviously, murder carries more serious consequences than mere anger. Yet the deed comes from the seed. It's the same evil, just in a different degree. Murder is uninhibited anger. Anger may never pull an actual trigger, but folks can pull the trigger in their heart. Verse 16, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Here's what I call cross-think. If Jesus went to the cross for me, then I can go the second mile. I can make small sacrifices for the people around me. I need to think of life and others in light of the cross. John 3.16 tells us how God loves us enough to give his only begotten son. Now, 1 John 3.16 tells us how we ought to love one another by laying down our lives. He says, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? If you got the goods and you see a need, don't shut up your heart. It may be that for some reason God speaks to you and shuts down your effort. We have limited resources and there are unlimited needs. We can't do it all. But you should never shut up your heart. A Christian's first impulse should be to help. God's love is aggressive, not passive. It doesn't bury its head or sit on its hands. Real love is love in action. Notice here the three traits of genuine love. 
It sees needs. It feels needs. And it meets needs. It sees the need. It feels the need. And then it meets the need. This is true love. Verse 18, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Anyone can talk a good talk, but true love is love in action. It's love that embraces the truth. And if you're a white person at this time in the history of our nation, here's how you can love a black person. You can see the injustices that occur way too often. The fear, the suspicion, the unjust profiling that awaits African-American sons as they go out into the world. And before you spout theories as to why it happens, can you just see that it does? There's a young black man in our church. You all know him. He's a wonderful kid. He's worked really, really hard, even here at the church, to buy his first car. But he wouldn't drive it until he got his tags in the mail. For he was afraid of what might happen if he was pulled over without his tags. You know, when my sons bought their first car, getting arrested because they didn't have the proper tags never crossed their mind. But it did with JP. We need to feel the effect this bias has on our black brothers and sisters. Moms fear for their sons. Wives fear for their husbands. How does a black man react when the blue lights are in the rearview mirror and he's done nothing wrong? The fear might not always be justified in the moment, but why is it always there? A few weeks ago, a black employee of Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, everyone's friend, Vernon, had to move some sound equipment from our cabin down to the church. It was late that night before Vern could get to church to do his job, and so he called a Gwinnett County police officer that also attends our church just to let him know what he was doing just in case. When Vern told me what he had done and why he had done it, it broke my heart. Hey, you can doubt if he really needed to make the call, but you need to feel why he did. I trust Vernon with my life. And it deeply troubles me that someone else might not trust him with some lousy sound gear and for no other reason than his skin color. Will you stand up for equality when racism raises its ugly head? Will you speak up when ignorance is being spouted? Will you lay down your life for a brother in Christ, even a brother of another color? Don't just love in word or on Facebook, but love in deed and in truth. For he tells us in verse 19, And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. See, love is what breeds confidence in my relationship with God. See, I know I'm a true child of God, not because I pray three hours a day or never miss church or always give an offering or teach a Sunday school class or even speak with tongues. I know that I know God because His love fills my heart and is revealed in my actions. 
Jesus said to his disciples, John 13, verse 35, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's true. Love is the believer's birthmark. He says, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. If you know there's hatred in your heart, God knows it too. You can't fool God. He speaks even louder than your heart speaks. He says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. I've heard it said, your conscience is like a baby. It has to go to sleep before you can. If you know there's a twinge of hatred or prejudice in your heart, it's time to repent. It's time to admit it and confess it before God and repent of it. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. A heart that's free from hatred, that lives by God's law and order, is a heart that's in harmony with God. And from that heart will flow prayers that are likely to be answered. Verse 23 tells us, and this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. You know, one of mankind's tendencies is to complicate things. We love to complicate. It's been said, America has 35 million laws trying to enforce 10 commandments. But God keeps His commandments simple. There are only two. Believe in Jesus and love one another. Chapter 3 ends with a reminder of the Holy Spirit. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. But chapter 4 begins with the acknowledgement of other spirits. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. In addition to love, another source of assurance for the believer is the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. No one becomes a child of God without receiving the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit births God's nature in us. And yet here's the problem we have in the spiritual realm. You see, love is demonstrated objectively. We love in deed and in truth. Yet the leading of God's Spirit is subjective. You know, the human spirit is like a satellite dish. It picks up all kinds of signals from all kinds of sources. God speaks to me. But the devil can plant thoughts in my mind. And the world sends me messages. And emotions influence me. My conscience and subconscious are alive and active. Even a late-night pizza can cause me disturbing messages. This is why John cautions us to test the spirits, whether they are of God. And then the next few verses, John tells us how to do a spiritual identification check. Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh 
is not of God. Simple enough. To peel back the spiritual facade of any impression, discover what it says about Jesus. A spirit, an inner influence that isn't correct about and honoring of the person of Jesus is evil and should be rejected. If it doesn't exalt Jesus, it's not of God. So let's say your boyfriend tells you that he's been praying about it and he believes that God would approve of the two of you having sex tonight. You need to test the spirits. You need to examine what you've been told. Wait a minute. What did Jesus teach? Would he agree? And the obvious answer is no. What would Jesus do is a good motto. In particular, John was dealing with a deception that had presented itself to his readers. In his day, the truth was under attack from a heresy known as Gnosticism. These false teachers had denied that God had come in human form. They believed that matter was intrinsically evil, thus God would never have taken a physical body. Of course, they couldn't deny that Jesus actually walked the earth. Jesus of Nazareth was a fact of history. There were too many eyewitnesses who saw him. Thus, the Gnostics tried to skirt the obvious. They made wild claims that Jesus had appeared, but not in flesh and bone, that he had come as a phantom. They concocted tales of him walking down the beach and leaving no footprints. Other Gnostics believed that the Spirit of God rested on the man Jesus until just before his crucifixion, at which point the divine Spirit departed from the human Jesus. See, they just couldn't bear the thought of God actually being crucified. In various ways, Gnosticism rejected the biblical truth that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Thus John writes, Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. In John's day, the heretics denied Jesus' humanity. It's interesting, today, the heresies concerning Jesus have largely flipped. Today, they deny His deity. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and other cults affirm Jesus' humanity, but they deny His godhood. They say He was an angel or a god but less than the God. Yet John's teaching applies to both denials. If you're not right on about Jesus, you're all wrong about God. And then he says in verse 3, And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Revelation 13 speaks of a global leader who'll lead a last day's revolt against God. He's anti-Christ, but his spirit has been around since John's day. Even today, there is a strong spirit of anti-Christ in our world. You can't watch a movie out of Hollywood without hearing the precious name of Jesus taking in vain over and over. Society advocates free speech for every ideology except those who speak for Jesus. Yes, the evil Antichrist is yet to appear, but his spirit is already at work. And then verse 4 is a hopeful verse. Hear of God, little children, and overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
Remember, as Christians, we face an evil trifecta. The world, the flesh, the devil. The world wants to beat us up. The devil attempts to rip us off. Our own flesh tries to drag us down. Needless to say, the Christian life is not a sheltered life. God allows us to undergo hardships, but in all that we undergo, our God promises to help us overcome. And here's how. Read again verse 4. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I hope you remember that. One plus God equals a majority. At times it may appear as if the world is stacked against you. Your opponent's hand seems loaded with aces and kings. Just remember, you've been given the trump card. Greater is he in you than all that's in this world. When you need strength, recall the God who hung the heavens dwells in you. When you need wisdom, keep in mind that the mind of God that knows all mysteries abides in you. Need calm and composure? Hey, the God who slept through the storm rides now in your boat. And when you need love, don't forget the love that sacrificed itself upon a tree is now alive in your heart. Let me suggest we all put this verse to memory. He who is greater, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And then verse 5. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Our ears hear only what they're tuned to hear. Let God train your ear and you'll hear God. But tune your ear to this world and you'll be deaf to the voice of God through his people. And note verse 6 when the Apostle John says, we are of God. The we refers to himself and the other apostles. Then when he says, he who knows God hears us, he who is not of God does not hear us. He's not on some ego trip here. He's affirming the position the first 12 apostles occupied in God's plan for his church. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 verse 20 that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles. Thus those that led by God's spirit, those led by God's spirit would pay attention to the apostles who had been authorized to speak on God's behalf. This is how the church is always designated inspired scripture and judged truth from error. Was it spoken by an apostle or under the authority of an apostle? If so, then it's of God and inspired by God. If not, it's of the world and should be rejected. In closing, love not in word only, but in deed and in truth. For real love sees the needs and feels the needs and then meets the needs.